names, and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. One of the curious things that can happen in a windstorm is that most trees withstand the onslaught, maybe losing some branches and clumps of leaves, but they remain tall and strong, while other trees are ripped out of the ground and lay there with their naked and surprisingly shallow root system for the whole world to see. Ah, we say, that tree looked like it was strong and healthy, but its roots were not. That's why it toppled in the wind. Today's guest, Jamie, was that thriving, beautiful tree who ran marathons, had dear friends, loved her work teaching children, and was about to be married. But the winds of change were starting to blow, and after a move to a very rural area with her new husband, along with the loss of connection to her friends and her mother, she began to break down. For Jamie's roots were damaged indeed. She grew up with an overwhelmed and anxious mother and an emotionally abusive and hypercritical stepfather in a home where she was mostly alone and not allowed to go into the various forbidden rooms of the house, even the living room. She grew up marinated in loss and longing and loneliness, yet she was able to find her inner strength and resilience and eventually grow tall and flourish, at least until she left most everything and everyone behind. Here, her story starts with leaving her life in Denver to marry and move to rural western Colorado, and she's already starting to feel the waves of fear and panic. I was getting a little nervous, and I went to a doctor before I got married, and uh, he prescribed me some Ativan just because I felt like my my nerves were getting to me as the wedding date was getting closer, and... Um, I could just feel the the stress coming on, and um, we got married. We had a nice um, little wedding. It was just the two dogs and us. Um, I didn't want to be the center of attention, so you know that I think that was a sign of my anxiety. I didn't want to have this big wedding. I just wanted to go off and do it. And um, before we got married, um, I took an Ativan. <laughs> I actually took an Ativan when we got married. And so... Um, did it help? It did help. Mm-hmm. It actually did help. And, um, you know, after looking at some pictures, um, I had my eyes closed. I think, I don't remember why. And uh, one of my sisters said it looked like uh, I was on a scary ride. Mm. <laughs> I went from living in a neighborhood where we all had keys to each other's houses and, you know, everything was just super accessible to living in a a place where um, nobody was around. Um, It just, it was just... uh, It's almost like it touched your deepest nerve of loneliness. You talked about how painful and awful that was to feel so alone after the divorce and and have this house where you went, but you're only allowed in certain parts of it, and you were so deeply lonely. And now you get married, which one would think would be a less lonely time, yet you move to a very isolated place where you're sort of stranded out there. And it's, yeah, it's touching one of your most painful, traumatic parts of yourself. Exactly. And I thought, what did I do? And I remember 
um, my husband going to work. And I, I called one of my old friends down in Denver, and I, and I just cried. I was sitting on our bed, and I cried, and I said, I hear wild turkeys. I hear wild turkeys. And it was just, it was um, something I told myself I needed to get used to. And I tried really hard to, you know, be social with the people, you know, that were down in the town. Um, so I really made an effort. But um, I brought my cat and my dog from Denver up with me. So they were sort of my my piece of home. And so then, oh, I'd say about a year after I moved up there, um, my cat started getting sick. And so I, of course, felt the anxiety. I've had that this cat for 20 years, and now the cat was going to die. Well, then a few months later, um, my dog got really, really, really sick. And I think that's what triggered this horrible um, anxiety. And so I... You just had too much loss. Exactly. I felt like I had left my comfort zone. I was away from um, my home, which I still considered home. And I just started getting resentful and angry um, that, that I basically compromised myself to live in a place that I didn't really want to live. As my dog got sicker and sicker, um, I, I started getting sicker and sicker. And uh, my dog had this surgery that um, it was, it was, he had cancer in his spleen and they had to remove the spleen. And so he had this surgery and I, I just became overly um, worried about him. And did he eat this? Did he eat that? And I, I remember right before my breakdown, I thought he had eaten a staple off of a piece of mail I had gotten. And I thought, well, gosh, if he ate the staple, then it's just going to tear his stomach up. And then, of course, I just started, oh, just started kind of going down this rabbit hole of what's going to happen if he ate the staple. And then next thing you know, I'm I'm like digging through the trash outside looking for a staple. Mm-hmm. And I knew that something wasn't right. Ended up going to a physician's assistant in my town, and um, she prescribed me some Paxil. And I had taken Paxil in the past, but just a minuscule dose of the Paxil. And I think she prescribed me, later on I found out that she had prescribed me like triple the dose. So that sent me into a huge tailspin and I could start, I started feeling the shaking and the jumping out of my skin feeling and I just kept getting worse physically. And then I called her and then she gave me Ativan. Ativan or lorazepam, is part of a family of powerful anti-anxiety meds called benzodiazepines. These include meds like Xanax and Clonopin and Valium. 
And while the benzodiazepines are like a bucket of cool water on a sizzling, anxious brain, in some people, they can have terrible rebound effects. Jamie quickly began to experience the miserable rebound anxiety and escalating physical dependence of Ativan, which then led to more Ativan use and more rebound anxiety, fueling a negative feedback loop. And so then um, I just started getting even more agitated and more shaky and more, oh, I, I, I just started like physically hurting. And, and it's, it's a hard feeling to describe the, the crawling out of my skin. Um, were you, <clears throat> excuse me, were you starting to get physically dependent on the Ativan around this time? Uh, probably yes, I, I I probably was because I was taking maybe a couple pills a day, and I think the more I took, the worse I got, or that at least that's what I thought. And then I just started losing weight, and um, I was just getting super depleted. Um, but I would still go to work, and people would notice. Well, what's wrong with you? You know, and I and I would shake, and and it was just I, I couldn't I couldn't function. And yeah. so I, every day I tried to go to work and get through the day, but it just kept getting harder and harder. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you were having what, <clears throat> excuse me, used to be called a nervous breakdown, which isn't used in psychiatry in 2019. But a lot of psychiatrists, including myself, think that actually that's a very descriptive and accurate term. And in some ways we should bring that back, that here you're shaking, you're kind of in a constant state of panic you can't eat you can't sleep your people are noticing that you're falling apart in front of their eyes yeah I would say that's exactly what happened and so I just I just had this need to get out of the situation not necessarily get away from my husband just but go to a place that felt comfortable when I knew that there was no way that I could step into the school to work I literally like I packed I packed one bag and I just threw in a couple shirts, a couple pair of pants and uh my dog, I threw him in the back of the car and he was at the time really sick. And I was real thin and shaking and I think I stopped at the neighbor's house um in the rural neighborhood, not really a neighborhood, but in the rural community and they I said could you just check my oil and I they they knew something was wrong with me but I was completely impaired and I somehow drove from the Grand Junction area all the way down to Denver and um impaired meaning with sleep deprivation and anxiety and depression and Ativan exactly I mean I I just someone was definitely watching over me that I made it down there in one piece but I knew that I had to nourish myself because at the time, like, I, I couldn't eat any food at all. I just, I couldn't eat. And I remember stopping at, you know, like a loaf and jug on the way down in the mountains. And uh, I bought one of those convenience store sandwiches, a cheese sandwich. And it was, you know, in one of those triangular packages. And I was so weak and, and shaking so badly, I, I literally couldn't open it. And I had to ask the the guy that worked there to, to open up the sandwich. And I knew that that, that was pretty rock bottom there. Mm-hmm. 
I went to uh, different psychiatrists and they would just give me different drugs, psychotropic drugs that, uh, that I can't even really remember what, mm-hmm. what, you know, they just, were you given a diagnosis? Depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Jamie's story is a perfect example of the problems with psychiatric diagnosis. She's having a slow motion nervous breakdown, but there's no DSM code for that. The DSM code, which probably best describes what is happening, would be major depressive disorder, single episode, without psychotic features. But as I argued in the last BFT episode, what's the deal with depression? Major depressive disorder is so vague as to essentially be meaningless. More accurately, Jamie's breakdown is coming through a combination of attachment and neglect trauma, lifelong sensitivity to others and to losses, and the recent move away from her mother and dear friends in Denver. Um, but I just, they just kept pumping me with more drugs. So you're seeing various doctors on trying different meds. Nothing's working. In fact, you're getting worse. Exactly. I, I just, I, and I would try to describe it to my friends and family um, and nobody really understood, you know, I would, I would go to a psychiatrist and, um, they would just write me a script and never really followed up. I, I felt like they didn't really care about who I was. And the longer it went, then the crazier I felt about myself. And I think people thought I was crazy. Did you think you were losing your mind? I did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I felt like, where did where did the old Jamie go? I mean, in fact, one time I went over to a, a friend of mine's house, and she had a picture of me on her refrigerator. And I looked at it, and I just had a... I was, I was me. I had a smile on my face, and I was happy, and... I picked up the picture and I just started crying because I thought, well, am I ever going to be like this again? Mm. You know, because it had been months and months that I didn't feel well at all. And how was the decision then made to go from this failing outpatient treatment with various psychiatrists and all these meds to then going to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy? ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, has been the gold standard for severe and treatment-resistant depression for many years, though ketamine may be slowly taking its place. ECT involves anesthetizing the patient, then inducing a seizure in the brain using one or two electrodes on the scalp. These seizures lead to an increase in synaptic connectivity and in other proteins and growth factors, which can help heal the depressed brain. The main side effect or consequence of ECT is memory loss. Many people lose most of their memories of just before, during, and after their course of treatment, which typically lasts a few weeks. Well, I was just, I was just desperate. I, uh, a friend of mine had given me this book about uh, depression and anxiety, and um, I read it. 
and there were parts of it that I could connect with just the 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 feeling of hopelessness the feeling like that I am never going to get better this pain I would look at everybody else's life and they all seemed happy and you know what happened to the the person that was super goal oriented um I used to run half marathons marathons I you know would teach and then I just became somebody that I didn't even recognize and who other people didn't recognize either and so I reached out to the author of this book and he told me to consider ECT and I really had nowhere else to turn I felt like I was at a dead end and I know ECT has a lot of stigma but he said he had gotten better but I didn't I didn't know what else to do because I just I couldn't live like that anymore I felt like you know, I wanted to die. Like, if this is what life's about, I just want to die. I never made a plan, but every day was the same thing for, gosh, almost two years. Just this excruciating pain that is just hard to describe. The it's worst like, pain it's like of your my mo- whole life. Your emotional pain was so overwhelming, it became physical. We talk about psychosomatic, which means mind-body, that I mean, I've heard many people describe that with severe depression, that their depression becomes an overall, I mean, a disabling, not just emotional emptiness and pain, but a physically debilitating pain. It was debilitating. I mean, I was depleted. I would, you know, have my friends or my mother take me to the grocery store, and I would be shaking. I'd just be shaking, and... um and I would just buy, you know, these nutritional like insurers so that I would have something in my body. Um, but I definitely felt like usually I'm a person, um, you know, people gravitate towards me, but I felt as though people were repelling, you know, like people did not want to be around me. Hmm. Um, except for the, the a few people that really stuck by me, some really really true good friends and my mother and you know my family would call yeah they were long distance but and were they supportive of your family and your husband of you making this very difficult decision to start ECT um it was basically my husband um and my mother and my good friend kind of helped me through that journey and I think everybody was really scared just because of the stigma, you know, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll lose your memory or, um, but I, there was nowhere else to turn. I didn't, I didn't know what else to do because before that I actually went to a hospital in Texas. None of this was, I wasn't like mandated to go. I, I was just trying to get better. And so I had heard about a hospital in Texas that I admitted myself into and I thought, well, gosh, if if I'm in a hospital for almost two weeks and I came back worse, what else can I do? This was some world-renowned place, and it was a really horrible experience. I came back worse. So was it shortly after that that you exactly? It was shortly after that. Yeah. yeah. What do you remember, if anything, from the ECT experience or the 
the time right after those treatments? Well, I remember having to go through a special entrance at the hospital, which made me feel crazy. Um, I remember, you know, getting prepared for it. I remember my mother and my husband crying because it was it was traumatic not only for me but for them. And I just remember from what I've been told that I was quieter, quieter, but apparently, you know, I, I think it helped. Mm-hmm. How many treatments did you have? Oh, maybe three or four. I think they wanted to do six, and I said, no more, no mm-hmm. more. I, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. That's very common after ECT treatments that people don't really remember how they were before, during, or after, but... What kind of feedback did you get from your family and friends about how you were pre-ECT and post-ECT? Um, they felt as though it, it did help me. I, it did help me. It helped me get off the the drugs because I I put a lot of weight on how those drugs affected me. I'm pretty I'm pretty sensitive. I told myself that I I had to get off these drugs, so I literally would take. I think I was on clonopin. They switched it to clonopin, which is a benzodiazepine. Clonopin, or clonazepam, is the most difficult benzodiazepine to get off of because it has a very long half-life in the body. This can make the withdrawal process stretch over weeks and months with chronic insomnia, rebound anxiety and panic, and gastrointestinal symptoms. And I would cut it up into crumbs. And I think that the ECT was in June. And December 31st of 2009, I took my last crumb. Mm. But I would still wake up, you know, with anxiety. And um, the mornings were the toughest, but that was it. I, I purposely just timed it so that I would start the new year without that. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the, arguably the two things that really pulled you out of this first brutal thing were the, the ECT and then the slow but painful taper off the benzodiazepines. And then you, over the next, what, months or year, you regained yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I still had anxiety, but it was, I felt much better and I had, I had convinced myself that I will never be on any other, I will never be on drugs ever again. Yeah. I went nine years without any medication. I almost, was almost at the point where I was like anti-meds, like, I am never taking any meds again. In the years after her first breakdown, Jamie got back to her fully healthy functioning self but increasingly traumatic losses steadily accumulated. She lost her mother. Her father died on her birthday. Then her older sister was hit by a car and suffered a traumatic brain injury, and then later went on to develop terminal cancer. As her second episode progressed, her death and loss anxiety manifested primarily through obsessive compulsive symptoms, which became increasingly disabling. At about... 2017, I started 
feeling like things were brewing again. You know, the OCD was coming back. I was doing things that were pretty silly. Um, What kinds of things? Well, you know, I was really worried about my dogs getting sick. So, um, you know, when people would spray Roundup in their yards, I didn't want my dog's paws touching them. And so we would, um, I would get upset if, you know, my husband let the dogs go on somebody's grass because then they would lick their paws and I thought that the dogs would get poisoned. Or if I took the dogs for a run, I had heard about their bellies flipping or turning. And so I would make sure that the dogs didn't eat until two hours, until after two hours. And it couldn't be, you know, one hour and 58 minutes. It had to be two hours exactly. (laughs) Did you have a lot of obsessive compulsive symptoms during the first breakdown? Or, or, Or was this becoming much more evident in this impending second breakdown? I think it was more prevalent in the in the second one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still, you know, would obsess about things like more in my head the first time, but now this was more about things that um, felt dangerous or I thought that there was um, radon in my basement and my husband put the dog food down in the basement and it was about half full and when he was out of town, I... I took the bag of dog food over to the uh, homeless homeless park to give to the to the give to the dog. One night I was sleeping, or I was I was trying to sleep, and it was almost as if a switch went on, and I that's when all those physical symptoms started. I was shaking and moaning and groaning, and my husband was next to me, and I and. He was just, go to sleep, go to sleep. And I said, I, I don't think I can. It's just, this, I mean, and at that time I discovered, wow, this, this is pure anxiety. I am on nothing at all. So this is me. This mm-hmm. is me. Though. So now I... So these were the same symptoms that you before had attributed to the medications. But now you're med-free and you're seeing, no, this is, this is what out-of-control, disabling anxiety, panic, depression feels like? It was a little different. I didn't have that uh, feeling of my skin crawling. It was more panic, shaking, heart rate. It was different Mm -hmm. than the first time. It was definitely uncomfortable. So, um, you know, it was like 2, 3 in the morning, and I asked my husband to please take me to the ER. And... um, so he took me in the, you know, in the wee hours of the morning and, and, you know, being in ER, they're not equipped to, to deal with, you know, people that might have some mental health issues. And so, um, I was there for about an hour and they basically said, you know, you'll need to go to your doctor, um, tomorrow or whenever the next day make an appointment with your doctor but this is all we can do and so um they they said that they could give me an Ativan and uh I just remember looking at the Ativan and I just 
was super still and I, I just didn't know what to do because I was so uncomfortable and um, I was kind of at this crossroads like, well, I told myself I was never going to take another one of these and here I was again, you know, mm. with an Ativan, you know, the nurse holding the Ativan. Your old friend from your wedding day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> back, back, back to haunt you again. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I, you know, I looked at my husband and he said, well, one can't hurt you. Um, so I took it. And it calmed me down. And so then um, the next day I, um, there was another drug I had taken. Um, one of my sisters warned me, do not take any more benzos, do not take any more benzos. So then I made an appointment with my primary care doctor and um, she prescribed me more Ativan. Um, and at that time, I was in search of a, a psychiatrist because I knew that I needed to be on something, but I didn't know what. Mm -hmm. It was the same old history repeating itself. I started shaking more. Um, I went to work shaking. Um, I felt out of control again. Like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this is happening again, again. And of course, you know, I, I thought my life was going to be ruined because uh, nobody helped me before. That must have been a scary move, I mean, given your negative experience with so many primary care docs and psychiatrists and nurse practitioners and neurofeedback pr practitioner. I mean, you had tried over and over and over. And now, again, you're going back to a psychiatrist to try to give it one more shot. Right. It was, um, I, I basically went in not trusting him or anybody. I was just very guarded, um, I was just, I thought, if, if if this psychiatrist doesn't work, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so um, my husband drove me because I just really was in no shape to drive anymore. Um, and I met my, I met the psychiatrist and he looked at me and he said, you're a mess. You're a mess. And, you know, I was shaking. I mean, my legs were shaking. My arms were shaking. Um... I told him that I had been on the Ativan for, at the most, a month. And uh, I, I gave him a big pile of papers. I went and got my DNA checked. I wanted to do it right the second time. I wanted to make sure that um, the medications I were on, was on um, were going to be compatible with my, my body chemistry. But he looked at me and he said, you're a mess. Um, you need to get off those benzos. We're going to rip the Band-Aid off. And he just wrote it on a simple white sheet of paper. That this is how we're going to get you off. You know, here's my phone number. It's going to be a ride. You better take two weeks off of school. Well, I thought, just two weeks? Because in the past, I had take months off. And so um, 
we drove home and I became even more anxious because I wasn't sure whether I trust the psychiatrist or not. Um, just because I, I didn't know if I was, if he was going to help. So he did. So, um, and what was different with this doctor? Well, this doctor was not, um, he was not pro benzos. Um, I know that benzos, benzodiazepines, you know, should be taken cautiously for a short period of time. And, uh, this doctor, you know, wanted me off of them. Um, he, he really, um, he genuinely cared about me as one of his patients. Um, he also set boundaries with me, but he, I also knew he was available because going through benzo withdrawal is is very painful and horrifying, and um, I never felt as though um, I was alone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I might, I might, I would, I would text my psychiatrist and say, you know. Oh, and actually, let me back up. So then he also, I just wanted to be off everything again. And he he um, was very smart about um, pharmaceuticals or just smart about the medicine. So he he put me on a, a slow-acting medication, anti-anxiety, um, Lexapro. And so he, he knew how to balance it. Although Jamie surely met criteria for another major depressive episode, the source of her depressive symptoms was her profound anxiety. When anxiety is cranked up high enough, it leads to helplessness and hopelessness and paralysis. Thus Lexapro, which is an SSRI, a med primarily for anxiety, not depression, Lexapro could help address the depressive breakdown by getting to her core anxiety. So as I was coming off the the Ativan, he was giving me something to sort of balance that without the withdrawal symptoms and um, bad, not any side effects. Mm-hmm. How long in- until you started feeling back to your old self? Well, let's see. My appointment was in October. I would say I started feeling better, oh, probably the beginning of December. He encouraged me to go back to work, and I remember him telling me, I was like, well, I'm not really ready to go back to work, because, I mean, every I was just super, like, hypervigilant about things, and I, um, the OCD was definitely not gone. I was still physically uncomfortable, but I remember him saying, fake it till you make it fake it till you make it. And um, slowly, you know, going back to work um, helped me. You know, I, I, you know, I would start laughing with the kids or, um, you know, I w- it was a good distraction for me. And then, oh, about a month, well, December 20th, I started feeling better about maybe Thanksgiving. And then my sister passed away a month later 
And how did you weather that loss? Because as we've talked about today, these huge losses in your life have tended to accumulate and send you reeling. But right after you're pulling out of your second big breakdown, your sister dies. When, when she was dying, um, I do feel a little bit guilty because I was still coming out of my own darkness and I, I didn't I didn't feel as though I was strong enough to be there by her side when she died. So that's that's something that I regret. But um, my sister left me as the personal representative of of everything. So I had to change roles and not be the sick one, but I had to be the leader and make the decisions and stand up to family members or um, I just had a lot of responsibility on my shoulders. And so I think it helped me to feel like I had a purpose. And that was like a gift that I could give to my sister is to to take care of things that she wanted mm-hmm. taken care of. And what a vote of confidence in you that she obviously had seen you in your darkest days and then as she's passing, clearly she thought she, you were healthy and strong and resilient enough to take over that task of managing her affairs, which is a heart-wrenching thing to do. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound, and thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.